Hello everyone, and it is our great pleasure to welcome you all to ECFR's new Russia podcast series, titled Viewer Code. Viewer Code, as many of you will of course know, is a reference to Nikolai Gogol's short story about the Russian clerk whose life dream was to get a fine overcoat, and which he then got and tragically lost. Dostoevsky has said that all of Russian literature comes from under Gogol's overcoat. Um, and also Gogol, of course, was born in Ukraine. Uh, so that also tells you how it is not quite possible to discuss Russia without discussing Ukraine. In any case, we hope that the workout will be the title that puzzles you a little bit and by virtue of puzzling you, interests you and you will come and listen. We will be recording a total of eight episodes between now and Russia's presidential so-called election, um, de facto probable validation of Putin's continued presidency, um, and the speakers will be three of our ECFR uh, visiting fellows, all exiled uh, Russians, uh, Ksenia Luchenko, Kirill Shamiev, Mikhail Komin, I will introduce them all in a second, and in, uh, today they are all together with us. At later podcasts, uh, they will appear separately and they will be joined by other Russian experts in exile. Uh, I hope you will find it of interest. Uh, happy listening. And now let's start with today's topic. So now, having introduced our podcast, let me start introducing our fellows uh, one by one. So, Xenia, why don't we start uh, with you? Tell us about yourself a little bit, what you are doing for ECFR and what have you been doing before that? Hi, I'm from Moscow. I'm originally from Moscow. Now I live in Berlin. I worked as a journalist for 20 years. Before I left Russia, I was a dean of the Faculty of Media Communications at the Moscow High School of Social and Economic Sciences. It is a private university founded by Theodore Shannon, a famous British sociologist. And my area of expertise is the Russian Orthodox Church, its relations with the state and the society, and the Russian media, media landscape, uh, history of Russian journalism, um, and for ECFR, I do research in these both areas. Kirill, why don't you go next? Sure, Kadri. Uh, hi, everybody. Thanks for joining in. My name is Kirill. I, um, I'm originally from the far east of Russia. I was born on the Sakhalin Island, which is very far away. It's close to Japan. I was raised in Habarovsk, which is near China. But I finished my undergraduate studies in St. Petersburg at the Higher School of Economics, and after which I left for Europe to study at the Central European University, where I did my master's in public policy, and then I finished my PhD in political science, actually recently, in January this year. When it comes to my expertise, I keep 
telling me, I keep saying now that I'm kind of Janus faced. Uh, I have a one side of my face, which is nice. I do policy studies, governance, focusing especially on the European Union, but there is also this Voldemort face. Uh, it's Russia, defense and security and civil military relations, especially uh, now uh, with the war against Ukraine. Thank you. And finally, Mikhail. Yeah, hi everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Mikhail Komin. And uh, so if we started when we was born, so I was born in a small uh, city near the Moscow Oblast. Uh, so this is a customer city. And uh, after that, I was graduated from some Russian universities and held master's degree in high school of economics, uh, which is in that time will was better than now <laughs> yeah but uh, after that i was worked a lot in different types of uh, russian think tank mostly working with data and work uh, closely with uh, different russian bureaucracy bodies and now for ecfr i'm working and doing the research uh, about the russian bureaucracy and how does the russian government work in these uh, conditions that we have now uh, during the war Thank you. So, listeners, be prepared. Always uh, reports are going to come out at one point, and they will be a delight to read. The topic for discussion, though, for our first podcast, we have chosen uh, Russian history books, how they are being changed now, uh, edited anew. There is a huge demand from the state uh, to... Um, change the content of history books. Um, so we thought that our own experiences, uh, and I think we are all born in fairly different times in the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't know, all of us, maybe not all. Uh, someone hasn't, uh, <laughs> Mikhail has not, you are young. Uh, so we can, we can discuss our experiences, but maybe before that, does anyone want to give us a short overview of, of what is happening right now with Russian history books? How are they being uh, uh, changed or re-edited? So, um, first of all, first of all, um, I would like to start by mentioning that the history book which we would like to discuss today is not only the one book. Yeah, uh, it is a bunch of the history book. Uh, which was written by Vladimir Medinsky, um, Russia, one of the ex-Russian Minister of Culture, and now he's an advisor in the President administration. Um, and this is the four uh, books. Two of them uh, is devoted um, to Russian history, and two of them is about the world history, and all of them cover the 20th and 21st century. Yeah, and I think that one of the main ideas behind creating all these four books at once uh, was to show the connection uh, between events in Russia and what was happening in other countries, primarily in the West. Yeah, and uh, so these four books have the very similar structure. And they focus on what is going on in the European continent mostly. But before each new chapter in the textbook, there is, you know, a list of key dates uh, related to the period under consideration of the of the chapter. 
And uh, uh, as I see that the selection of dates from world history uh, is not accidental in the most cases. As a rule, it uh, um, should demonstrate um, some aggressive policy of the West directed not against only to Russia, but to other uh, countries too, to other world too. And I think this is the key point which... uh, it would like to demonstrate, yeah, uh, the the author to, to would like to demonstrate to us. Uh, so uh, the reason why these books appeared now it is because they understand they need to do more ideologization, to do more political um, political um, support to Russian um, teachers of history, um, to do their history as a tool to influence on the youth. And uh, so the main idea of it, I think that uh, that this textbook seemed to imply that Russia is continuing its historical struggle with the West and the ongoing war with Ukraine is one of the imminent episodes of this struggle. Anyone else wants to add? Ksenia. I think I can add that um, over the last few years, or even a dozen of years, uh, and I have been following this discussion as a journalist, uh, there have been discussion in Russian society about whether there can be many different school textbooks or whether there should be one unified program for all schools from Moscow to Vladivostok. And history textbooks and a list of classic books on literature, uh, they are perceived as the basis of the I mean, self-description of the Russian state. And now we have this uh, one unique uh, textbook for everyone and one list of uh, of classic Russian literature that should be taught to all the pupils from all over the country. Kirill. I would uh, add maybe a small point that perhaps apart from the history books, we should consider this as a broader environment where the Russian kids are now living in. Uh, it's, uh, for example, mass media, state-funded movies and uh, TV shows, and also what's happening on the social media, which is, uh, we, I think, the Kremlin's been inventing, in, investing a lot now, uh, sort of the production of this easy TikTok style of content about the Russian history, situating it as a hero, as a world, world, world saver, as a, as a defender of Christian or traditional values. And it all kind of creates this environment where the kids are socialized in and they, they grow up with a very uh, special understanding of who they are, where they come from, and what is, what is sort of on the geopolitical level, what is right and what is wrong. Well, that is something we have all, I mean, not all, <laughs> most of us have lived through it one way or, or other. So let's discuss a little bit of how history was taught when, when we went to school. Um, in my case, that was that was still uh, Soviet time in Soviet Estonia, but you know, added a few accents, uh, specific accents, I, I, I suggest. Um, it was very uniform view, and I don't think I was lucky at high school to have good history teachers. Uh, my school time before university history teachers were all 
And looking back, I think they were ordinary people who just tried to do their job without getting trouble. That's why they didn't tell us excessively anything interesting about history. They tried to uh, stick to the script. And it was, of course, hilarious to see that when Perestroika started and things started to changing, then the version of history also started to changing from week to week. I think our then teacher took her cues from Izvestia. Uh, she, she probably read um, central Russian newspapers and decided, based upon them, uh, what was uh, acceptable uh, to discuss, what, what not. And thinking back, what has that uh, meant to me? Mm, I think the ideological framework up to a point was easy to ditch. Um, it was easy, for instance, to start seeing Soviet Union not as um, a <clears throat> benevolent actor, but as something else. I think invasion of Afghanistan did it for me. Uh, I was nine at the time, and my older cousin told me that Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan, but briefly shattered my world because I had believed that Soviet Union was good. Then I decided it was bad. That was easy, but it was significantly harder to come to a more sophisticated understanding of history, to start seeing causalities, one leading to another, good things sometimes, good intentions leading to bad things, bad things having accidentally good effects, you know, all these paradoxes, history is full. And of course, I still notice that I'm still affected by things that were not taught to us. I only recently discovered that actually the biggest sea battle of Second World War in terms of people perished took, off Estonia's, uh, took place outside Estonia's coastline. I, I hadn't known it, or, or also, you know, when I was living in England and uh, I saw the end date of Second World War written as September 1945, I sort of blinked for a moment because deep in my mind, 9th of May was imprinted thanks to my Soviet education. Um, it's, it's also interesting in a way, you keep, you know, now you can make sense of both your blind spots as well as what you fill them with. It It is interesting to, to follow it, but still, it was not a perfect education by no means. So how about you? I studied in Moscow in a school with French language, so-called special school. And uh, in the early 90s, uh, the school uniform was cancelled. Two more foreign languages, English and German, were added to the curriculum. And uh, all textbooks um, were cancelled in general. They instantly became out of date um, just in some months. Uh, and at the same time, a huge number of reprints of pre-revolutionary books appeared. They were sold everywhere. At the time, books were sold on the streets, on the, on the tables next to foodstuff. And there were sold a lot of old books and copies of these old books and new translations from all European languages. And uh, our teachers bought it as, as we did, bought all these uh, new, new books, and we read it together. 
we learned history from Ilovsky's uh, uh, and Shimova's textbooks, which were used by pre-revolutionary gymnasists. Uh, these are patriotic, conservative, state-centered textbooks. But at that time, then, they were, above all, anti-Soviet books. They were perceived as something fresh, out, uh, fresh outside of ideology. Uh, and they were read like, like a sort of fairy tales. Uh, we practically learned them by heart. No Marxism, no Communist Party, but there were church, uh, tsars, and some other beautiful things, victories. Um, we also read uh, Karamzin and Kluchevsky, uh, and so on. And in high school, when we learned the history of the 20th century, uh, we were given a list of uh, scientific articles uh, just published, fresh researches, and we went to the libraries, uh, made photocopies and did uh, reports, presentations and so on. There were pu publications about the Red Terror, Stalin's Terror, underground culture and so on. And we discussed them during the lessons. Our teachers, um, for them, uh, all these things were, were as new as for us. So they opened this new world with us together. And they also read for the first time about repressions, uh, the truth about the Cold War. Um, we read some memoirs newly published, for example, of Nadezhda Mandelstam, or a graphic novel of um, by Efrosini Kersnovska. It was about um, how one family survived in uh, Gulag. And so on, and we read it all together. It was, in, but of course, it was not a systematic knowledge, not at all. But it was, um, but we understood that world is very different. The history is very different, and this mix of uh, romantic stories about um, Russian tsars and about the communist terror, well. I think it was a good idea if we speak about the 90s where we, it was much better than uh, reading the old textbooks. Kirill, how about you? Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a peculiar background because I studied actually in three schools uh, in Russia, in Moscow, um, Habarovsk, and uh, I finished my high school in St. Petersburg. And I must say uh, and, um, that, and I, I was studying in 2000s, early 2000s, I must say that a lot, depending on the teacher, uh, for example, in my Habara school, uh, the, uh, the teacher was just, I would say, normal, ordinary, and we were just basically starting by the book. And in that time, the book was very boring. I remember they were forcing us to remember all the dates and like personalities without actually explaining what it is. And it still sometimes, sometimes affects me even now. For example, uh, I remember how they forced us to remember the date of uh, Grunwald battle, uh, which is, has an enormous importance for Eastern Europe. Uh, still remember it, it's actually 1410, July 15th. But I realized the meaning of that battle only in, actually three years ago, maybe, when I was doing my doctorate in political science. Because they, didn't, they weren't explaining why, but you, you, I still had to remember all the dates, especially because uh, I had to prepare for the unified state exam 
after my high school graduation in order to be admitted to the university. But I was interested myself, and I, uh, I, I visited extracurricular classes at the university and uh, outside the school. And for example, in St. Petersburg, the teacher was way more engaging and involved in, uh, in kind of in explaining to the pupils what the history was actually about. And I remember him debunking the myth about the royal Romanov's family, uh, how he was saying, like, oh, you know, the official historiography, Peter the Great died because I think he was saving a sailor and he got like pneumonia or something. And he's like, no, look, see how much they drank back in the days. They always had these parties. So, and if I give you every day several liters of vodka, you know, <laughs> any, any, if you catch any cold, you will probably die quite quickly. I still remember, we were like, oh, wow, really? Peter the Great could actually die just because he was like drinking too much. And, and, and this really um, showed to me that the history can be fun sometimes, but also kind of a, uh, thought-provoking and uh, also forming the way, uh, for example, I started to look at politics and historical events and uh, Russia in general. Another aspect is the regional dimension, because the majority of my uh, childhood years I spent in the Far East and there were some ideas about, uh, I remember us being interested in the Far Eastern Republic, uh, kind of very short-lived uh, semi-independent state during the uh, Civil War, or how we were discussing with a lot of interest the intervention of Western powers again during the Civil War, and they're like, oh, the American troops were on the streets of Khabarovsk, so cool. And uh, uh, but then when I moved to uh, to Saint Petersburg, I realized that these matters were not interested, were of of no interest whatsoever to the kids in around me in Saint Pete's. But for example, the events, uh, of course, the tragic siege of Leningrad and uh, uh, the importance of this uh, became way more apparent to me, and 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 other dimensions like more Western looking, for example, open up to me as well. Thank you. And Mikhail, the only one of us without Soviet background. How about you? Not only one, I think. Uh, but yeah, so um, during my listening, Xenia and uh, Kirill, I, would, I usually would like to say Jackie privileged guys, because <laughs> I went to school in a small Russian city named Kostroma. Yeah, so and the quality of education in such school is low, especially in the humanities. Uh, yeah, my school mostly focused on math and physics, and uh, there wasn't much time left to other uh, subjects uh, like history, for example. Uh, if I right remember, our history teacher changed frequently, which makes me think that there was almost no ideology in history lessons. And I think that in the end of 2000, there is no a lot of ideology in history lessons yet. Yeah, um, but a lot of time in the last grades of school um, was devoted to the great patriotic war, which we named it in Russia. So this is a World War II, yeah. And uh, we study in, in small details what literally uh, every day was happened during this war. And uh, how uh, Soviet people uh, uh, do the stuff which is connected to the war, yeah, uh, with uh, uh, working on the economy, working on the, some other aspects, yeah. And I think this is the main idealization 
issue in my years, which is manifested uh, in the history lessons. But in general, in general, I learned the basic information about history and historical historical events, uh, not from the school program, but from uh, some kind of preparatory courses at the high school of economics. Uh, and I think it is interesting details which is highlight how the um, education was organized uh, in the late of 2000. So uh, my school in Kostroma participated in some program from the High School of Economics, uh, the name of which I don't remember anymore. But the point of the program was that anyone who wanted to uh, to um, uh, to participate in their and listen some of these preparatory courses, they need to uh, come to a computer science class. Uh, it was only one place with the internet in the school. And uh, through the uh, connection, uh, so to this uh, bunch of the preparatory courses from um, High School of Economics, you can listen a lot of different course. Also, I started uh, listening to math course, which is which wasn't so 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 great, I think. But also because of the format and because of the interesting uh, type of uh, educational process, I think that I switch on to the more humanities and to history lessons too. And uh, so in a sense, I think that my school education, in, um, especially in the high school, was strongly supplemented by what the teachers of the national, of the high school of economics uh, told me in their courses. Yeah, uh, And I think it was a balanced education uh, including emphasis of the role of the different factors, for example, in collapse of the USSR, and so other stuff which is um, demonstrate quite good um, uh, and balanced uh, system of teaching. So I think that's uh, mostly my interest in history and uh, uh, humanities. It is connected with this with this uh, um, course by high school economics. Thanks. Um, well, it's fascinating, actually, uh, all, all those experiences of, of ours. Um, turning to today, though, um, to what extent do you think um, the politicization of history is inevitable as, as a feature of authoritarian state that is waging a war? I mean, wartime, even in democratic states, actually, uh, encourages a black and white take also on, on, on history. I think we can also see that in, in some places in the West. And to what extent it is actually um, stems, to what extent does it stem from Putin? I mean, his fascination with history, but also, as we now know, and I am afraid I failed to appreciate it in full at the time, it dates back to at least 2016, if, if, not, if not longer, uh, he, he started reading more history, more archive documents, and restarted actually driving his political thinking. So what is it? And, and does it matter? And, and, and maybe actually a more relevant question when it comes to future is, do you think a Russian society will have more resilience uh, towards official versions of history than, you know, Soviet society did? I mean, what you have described, uh, your education on history in Russia might, might have been chaotic, but at least, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't necessarily orthodox. There were interesting things offered. So 
a full generation has still managed to grow up in a slightly more open environment. Do you think that will have an impact on what will follow when history is back to strict orthodox version of events? Or should we not have our hopes up? I would say that I think that all states, all governments uh, politicize the history because uh, school, I mean, education, uh, history, education at schools. Because it's one of the main tools to form this mythology about the state, to form the citizenship, to to make the kids understand they are, for example, French, uh, German, Estonians, Americans, Russians, whoever they are. So it's kind of inevitable. But the problem is what is what is in there? Um, what is what is being taught there? And now what I see the problem that is first it's uh, this general tendency to. Uh, disregard uh, human rights, for example, to look at the events from the perspective of the great state, great rulers, making important decisions, and not even talking about the cost of life, uh, uh, no need to go like far away, the, uh, the the Second World War. And I see this uh, because I need to, I have to follow now all these telegram channels of people on the front lines from the Russian side. And all they, they see themselves as the the sons, grandsons of fighters in the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War, how they call it. And the, some of them, uh, they actually cherish uh, Joseph Stalin, thinking he was the great uh, commander in chief, which was, uh, well, if you look at this, uh, any historical works and statistics was not true. And this creates these preconditions for several for certain political forces to be more popular. And this is a problem. And I think this is a problem that Russia would have to deal with uh, if there is any change in uh, the Russian political system in the future, because those kids who are being socialized in this environment, uh, they would already have these deep core beliefs formed at school uh, that would at somehow affect their political choice. But I'm more optimistic here because it's the 21st century, the internet, uh, you know, streaming services and uh, Western movies and so on. So I guess we'll see actually more diversity. So now there is, no, I, I just want to warn everybody. So I'm not trying to parallel, to make parallels with the nineties, for instance, when the former Soviet citizens ended up in capitalism and, sort of uh, semi-weak democratic system, I think uh, in the future in Russia, again, if there is any change, uh, the things would be uh, somewhat more, somewhat different and hopefully more stable. Ksenia, what do you think? Um, I think that the difference between the generation that live now and those who were whose youth was um, in Soviet times is that we saw uh, a lot of different versions of history. So in the Soviet times, there was one unique interpretation during the well half of a century. And now we have seen a lot of different versions. For example, um, Putin in, well, 13 years ago, he fully recognized that Polish officers were shot by NKVD at Katyn. He even um, gave the copies of the archives to the Polish authorities. And uh, now uh, our state-owned informational agencies uh, message that uh, Germans are responsible for the cutting, again, (laughs) like in Soviet times. And all bad things were done by the interventionalists 
throughout Russian history. Putin's main idea is the well, sinless of uh, Russian power, Russian state. That's a religious category, I, I think. Uh, well, uh, but those who live now remember, for example, that Yeltsin uh, acted differently. He, for example, uh, for him, the shooting of the uh, Nicholas II family was important personally because he was from the Urals. Uh, he was in charge of Yekaterinburg in the late 1970s and ordered to destroy uh, to destroy the Patyev's house where Nicholas uh, the Great, uh, the Great Nicholas, uh, the Emperor Nicholas II, and his family were shot. And uh, why, when he already was president of Russia, he talked about how sorry he was, and he did all he could to bury uh, the Imperator, Emperor's family. Uh, in St. Petersburg and so on. But Putin has no regrets about anything about the, uh, except the collapse of the Soviet Union that was also destroyed by foreign, uh, foreign agent, for, foreign agents, uh, agents uh, external forces and so on. That, so I think that uh, this, um, the this historical narrative is very flexible. And now living generations remember that different versions exist at the same time. And the main, uh, main uh, uh, position of the Russian states towards the interpretation of historical events changes um, every, every couple of years. So I think that, I don't know if it's good, but I hope that it's better than the unique version. Offer some immunity. Mihail, anything to add? Yeah, um, I'm not sure that I can be so optimistic as uh, my colleagues, because I think that the appearing of this Unite um, History textbook has some bad um, consequences on Russian society, especially for the, um, not for the Russian capitals, yeah, not to the big cities, but to the small cities and to the Russian region, because, okay, we have the internet there, and uh, the youth generation is quite <laughs> good user of the internet, but this state obsession of the history I think it is implicates on the um, Russian um, population a lot. Uh, but and the main problem in Russia today, I think, is that uh, President Vladimir Putin has decided that he is the historian who um, must make history. Um, so you know that Putin has written several allegedly historical articles by himself, uh, which in fact reflect his view of the world and how he would like to solve the problems that in the world was arised. Yeah? For example, his article on the historical unity between Russians and Ukrainians, uh, he was written it, uh, he, he, he wrote it in 2021. Uh, so this article gives insight into why he... Uh, decided that an invasion was possible and why this Russian invasion of Ukraine would be received positively by most Ukrainians. 
And so when you ask about the extent to which the um, environment or um, Russian elite um, has the uh, influence on the using the history as a tool or Vladimir Putin insisting on it. I think that in most cases, especially the last few years, uh, this using history is the ideology or is a tool is being coming from him directly. And the environment, the other Russian elite and his inner circle is adjusting to the way the presidency is. And I think this is the, the, the big problem and why we are discussing this topic now. Uh, because for now, especially after the invasion, the history becomes more and more influential, uh, not only to the Russian elite and to the uh, Vladimir Putin, but to the most part of the Russian society. Thanks. Well, time is running. Um, we need to soon wrap up for today. So we have one agenda item left, and that is to um, follow the great ECFR tradition uh, to end podcasts with bookshelf segment. Uh, Mark Leonard usually asks everyone, uh, what are you reading? What's interesting? Uh, I think we will ask our we will finish our history podcast by asking what's the best history book you have read or the one that has influenced you in some uh, specific way. What what would you want to mention, Kirill? Um, as a as a person who does studies civil military relations, probably I would say that the book titled The so Soldiers and the Soviet State, Civil-Military Relations from Brezhnev to Gorbachev, uh, written by Timothy Colton and Thane Gustafsson, uh, was the one that um, that progressed my thinking about civil-military relations in Russia and the Soviet legacy uh, in, in contemporary Russia. It's a very, very well-written book, um, I think published at Princeton University Press, that sort of overviews uh, the uh, civil relations in the Soviet times, which has important um, value for understanding Russia's senior command and the relationship between the president and the military today. Mikhail? Yeah, I think that's maybe not the best book of the Russian history, yeah, because it's quite not easy choice. Yeah, but the last one which I have read, which I have read about the history, and I think it's really a good one. Uh, I have read the uh, book from uh, Yuri Slyoskin, The House of Government. Yeah, maybe maybe it is, it is quite, I think, famous in the Western part of the world too. Uh, so the main idea of the book is to um, show how um, through, through the history of one building, uh, in Russia, uh, you can see how different generation of Russian state and Russian elites um, changed and what is the implication of this changing and what is the implication and their view on this, this uh, house. So I think this is mostly anthropological centric book, but, uh, or social uh, centric book, but it is quite good if you would like to see what is happening last a lot of years in Russian history and looking only through one, one uh, great building. I actually, Mikhail, I wanted to uh, advertise exactly the same book on my behalf. Uh, I think it is really 
good work and very well researched. Uh, I have a special connection to it because I have lived in the uh, House of Government in 98 to 2000. Um, I had I rented an apartment, or actually my newspaper rented an apartment for me, uh, apartment 163. Uh, the windows, uh, kitchen windows faced either the great statue and Moscow University from my living room windows. I saw Alexander House, which became Putin's election headquarters in uh, 2000. So I, I looked at those windows and I was wondering what's, what's baking behind them. Later on, I also discovered a list of Moscow apartments uh, composed by Memorial Society. Uh, indicating who has been repressed or shot from from which address. Uh, so I started uh, searching my my former address, and true enough, uh, Vladimir Milutin uh, has lived there, uh, former Menshevik, um, uh, then Soviet bureaucrat, and uh, he has been uh, shot on 30th of October, nineteen thirty-seven. So I, I thought of him a lot when I discovered, actually, another irony, that one of his descendants has become a fairly orthodox odios uh, historian in, in today's Russia. That's how these things sometimes work. But the book by Yuri Zlyoskin is definitely worth reading. Xenia. I would also recommend an anthropologist book, much more than historical one. Uh, it's a book by Alexei Yurchak, Everything was forever until it was no more. The last Soviet generation. Uh, it's a more about, not about the history of the late Soviet Union, but about the discourse, uh, the ideology, uh, the language, the rituals, and how through all these uh, things we um, one could see that the Soviet Union would collapse, that it is destroying from the um, from the inner uh, and it was it's a book about relations, about everyday life uh, and it is based on uh, the linguistic analysis as well as the anthropological one. So I think it's one of the best uh, books ever to understand the uh, mentality of Soviet and post-Soviet people. Thank you so much. We uh, will try to post the links uh, to all these books on our website so that you can find them easily if uh, you are interested to read. And we will be back uh, with some of our fellows and new topics uh, and some additional guests before too long. Thank you for listening.